Good morning. Uh, if you would, turn with me to Genesis 26. Genesis chapter 26. Some Mother's Days and Father's Days, I will preach a specific message in regards to that, but I do not care for the calendar to guide the pulpit. Um, and so I'm going to be continuing in the series that uh, we just got back into a couple weeks ago this morning. Um, before I do, a couple things, and they're not connected in any way, so it feels a little bit disjointed, but bear with me. Um, Abigail Higdon is here this morning, and that is the daughter of Lee and Shannon Higdon. I've heard the names Lee and Shannon Higdon since I was about five or six. Uh, they were missionaries supported by my home church, and so it's kind of cool to be introducing their daughter. Um, during Sunday school, she's going to be sharing about the mission work that she's doing and heading into. So if everybody would stick around, everybody would stick around. Um, all Sunday school classes are going to be together uh, to hear what Abigail has to share. And there will be a plate up here. I want to give a little love offering to, to Abigail. Okay, so now do this with me. That's gone, all right? Because it's not connected. <clears throat> um, I want to pray this morning. I know I'm sure all of you to some extent are aware of um, some of the stuff going on with the Supreme Court and some of the discussion in reference to abortion rights and these things in our country. Um, I just want to lift that before God for a, for a minute or two. Um, the depravity of man never ceases to amaze that we're debating whether or not we can take the lives of people. So let's, um, <clears throat> let's go to the Lord on that, and then we'll, we'll come to his word. Father, I, I pray you'd have mercy. We are in no way deserving of that. We're in no way in a place, Father, where we could demand you to be, to be kind to us. Oh, but Father God, I pray that you'd have mercy. You would open the eyes of, of many in this country to recognize the, the wickedness that's in us. And Father, I pray for your church to be faithful to walk in obedience to what we know is right and true from your word. God, the fact that this is an issue for debate is mind-boggling to me. So Father, I, I just plead with you, if, if you would, Lord, would you be at work clearly in the hearts of those who are seeking to debate and argue, Father, would recognize the clarity of when life begins and the preciousness of life. Father, I pray for the moms in our country who are debating whether or not to take the life of their child or not. I pray for the moms who may ha already have. 
Lord God, none of us, none of us are better than any. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of redemption from the Lord Jesus. So, Father, I plead with you for our country. Have mercy. And stir the hearts of your people. And, Father, open the eyes of the blind. Bring to life the dead. Allow them to see Jesus Christ as beautiful. That that may alter our actions, Lord. Resulting in your glory. I pray and ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Genesis chapter 26 is um, we're going to be coming back to this study. Perhaps you remember we started chapter 26 last Sunday, and um, I'm going to pick up where we left off with Isaac. Again, one of the um, longest living patriarchs, and yet one chapter given to him. I find that kind of an interesting stat, uh, but nonetheless, it it is the truth. Chapter 26 is a chapter that is specifically devoted only to this man. And I'll just own this at the beginning, because this may come to your mind, and let me beat you to it. You may hear this message and go, this is a perfect Father's Day message. (laughs) I know. Um, But I also think it's a perfect Mother's Day message and Believer's Day message, um, because it speaks to every last one of us. If you look at chapter 26 and you look at verse 11, it says, So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now here's the big question in my mind, and perhaps it is in yours, if You're paying attention between last week and this week. Last week, Dan, you covered a text that spoke about the sin of this man. As he showed up and he lied, he said, uh, tell everybody that you're my sister. Falling in the same trap his father did, the same lie, the same sin, putting his wife in the same danger that Sarah was put into. And then he was found out. And then the very next thing is, and God blessed him. And I want to go, now wait a second, what? There should be something in here about, and then he repented, or and then he changed, or something of that nature. I just don't see it in the text. And so that was the first wrestling match I had in studying this passage this week, thinking, okay, so why are we going from here to here? And a commentary that was given to me by uh, my dear friend Tony... Um, that I've been using throughout this series by William Griffith Thomas was very helpful to me. Um, So this is a little bit of a chunk of a quote. This is not a quote of Link Craig. This is a quote of William Griffith Thomas. He says this, The answer may be found in a somewhat frequent experience of the people of God. They are often permitted to receive publicly a measure and a great measure 
of the divine blessing, even when they may not be in private fully faithful to the divine will. God may at times honor his people in the sight of men while dealing with them in secret on account of their sins. I think of Moses when he hit the rock when he was supposed to speak to the rock. And the Lord said, you will not go into the promised land. But simultaneously, everybody cheered, and that became Moses' day among the people, and yet he dishonored the Lord. There are times, beloved, where God may bless our doing But inwardly, he may be doing some work in our hearts because of what's going on in there. He says, as Richard Cecil once said, a minister of Christ is often in highest honor of men for the performance of one half of his work, while God is regarding him with displeasure for, uh, I'm sorry, I lost my spot, displeasure for the neglect of the other half. It seems to have been something like this with Isaac. In the presence of his enemies, the Philistines, God indeed prepared a table before him. But it is pretty evident from the account of his sin. It is pretty evident from what follows that God had other ways of dealing with him on account of his sin. God may not suffer his servants to be dishonored before the world, but he will take care to discipline them in faithfulness and even with severity in the secret of his fellowship with them. Now, I I realize that's a little bit thick, but do you understand what he's saying? I think that there's something going on here that makes, this makes a lot of sense to me. There are times when God may not make a big public spectacle of us, but in secret, or in trials, or in some aspect of our life, the Lord recognizes there's a rough spot here, and a little bit of sandpaper will do you good. Perhaps not everybody will see that, but nonetheless, the Lord will be at work in them. It's always interesting to read a biography, a good biography, by some of the eminent saints of of the past. And as you read that, you go, wow, this person was fantastic. This person preached to hundreds of thousands. He wrote this. He wrote that. It's just amazing. But a good biographer will also remind you that he also suffered greatly with depression. His wife was suffering continually. And it goes down the list that God, in a behind the, just what the public sees, the Lord lovingly and kindly will deal with us. And so, what happens at the end of the text that I'm going to be preaching today, I think, reveals very clearly that there is a growing maturity in Isaac and a growing intimacy between he and the Lord. Not only that, we're going to see some great turmoil in this fellow's life um, in this, in this text. So this first point, if you're keeping track with me, is blessing and departure. Blessing and departure. Look at verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Our Lord knows exactly how to deal with us in the way we need to be dealt with. Um, 
he knows you better than you know you. He knows me better than I know me. And the Lord knows what to bring into our lives to keep us humble, to keep us strong, and to keep us moving forward for his glory. Isaac is extremely blessed. Remember, guys, do you remember the reason he went down to Gerar or went over to Gerar? He's on his way to Egypt. God stopped him, said, no, stop right there. Stay in Gerar. This is all due to a famine, okay? So there's a great famine in the land, most likely a drought of some sort going on. And we're told that he starts sowing in the land. It's not necessarily land that he owns per se. I don't see that in the text. But there is land present where he begins to sow. And God richly blesses him. A hundredfold in the midst of a famine is amazing. And to the point, as we're going to see in a little bit, his detractors really get upset by this. Um, as they look at their lettuce patch and then they look over at his lettuce patch, they're amazed going, wait a second, what's going on? We're all in the same place. How come this guy is so richly blessed? We're told that he's blessed in crops. We're told he's blessed in wealth. Obviously, one comes before the other. We're told he's blessed in flocks and herds, as well as many servants, all during a famine. God's covenant blessings to Abraham, or on behalf of Abraham, now on behalf of Isaac, God is with him and God is blessing him. Remember, God promised that to you. I will be with you and I will bless you. Please notice, you guys, that the sin done by Isaac in the first part of this chapter did not null and void the word of the living God. God said, I will do this, you're going to mess up, and I'll, I'll grow you up a little bit more. I'll mature you in that, but my word remains. I will bless you. I will be with you regardless. And so, once again, the text is crystal clear. Our God is a God of his word. He said he would do this, and he is doing it. But nowhere in Scripture is there a promise that in the midst of that blessing there won't be trials. There won't be difficulty. D.A. Carson said in uh, one of his books years ago, all one has to do is live long enough and he will endure pain. He will endure suffering. And so, yes, he has the world's possessions, flocks. He has herds. He has many servants. But a great trial comes up into this guy's life. If you look down at verse 15... Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. So these wells that his father Abraham had dug years before, now he's going to them and finding that the Philistines had stopped them up. And some folks like to debate, you know, did they do this quickly right here at this point on behalf of trying to stop Isaac? Or is this something they did a long time ago and it had nothing to do with Isaac, but had to do with they just don't want other people to come in and start taking advantage of these wells. That's where I hang my hat, but it doesn't really matter to me because the point is these wells are stopped up. And as Isaac goes to get water, he's struggling because all these wells have been plugged. Now, let's stop and think about this for just a second. It's fascinating to me that God has so richly blessed him God has poured out his blessing on him, but then the one thing that he needs is water? Really? 
You mean the Lord would, would so richly bless and pour all this into your life, but then he would actually put a stumbling block into your life to the point that I need water. I don't know about you. I mean, sometimes I'll say it periodically, I suppose, but I rarely say, oh man, this is going to be a tough day. I need water. So basic, so generic, so all of us need it. And yet that's exactly what happens here. Isaac, you need water. And so his dependency on the Lord is never removed. Please, beloved, don't miss that point. It is the point, one of the points of the whole Bible. Your dependency on the Lord is never, ever removed. We always are dependent upon him. The tricky part in between our ears is when we start to think we aren't. We start to actually think, I've got this. And usually we do that when the Lord's blessing is in our life. When the Lord richly blesses us, he allows all kinds of things into our lives. We say, this is sweet, this is fantastic. And then we start enjoying the blessings and we start actually getting so arrogant to think maybe these blessings are because I worked for them. And then all of a sudden the Lord is not present. And so by grace he goes, hold on, roadblock. You have forgotten your dependency upon me. And so via the Philistines... Isaac cannot find water. The wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines, stopped up by filling them with earth. Verse 16, Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. I I thought long and hard trying to figure out what does he mean by that? Is he scared that if he keeps building and building and building, that he'll be able to then overpower them and take control of them? Probably. Obviously, we're told that they have envy of him. The Philistines are envying God's blessing on this man. And so rather than maybe connect with him and seek to, which you will see later, they say, leave. I want you to leave. I think it's fascinating that Isaac has tremendous blessing. The Lord is granting him. He's doing very well. And then God in his grace, this is the tricky part, right? God in his grace gives him difficulty. Guys, that's an aspect of Scripture that I think at times we neglect or we... We just don't believe at times. It's hard to get between our ears that God would hurt us for our good. God would bring stuff into our lives for difficulty's sake to grow us and to bless us. But I am convinced by the word that that's true. I could give you a myriad of things to point to. I'm not going to do that, but I'm just convinced from the word of God God blesses us in the midst of difficulty. Sometimes blesses us by difficulty. And so Isaac doesn't have water, and now the king says, I want you to leave. You're too powerful. They're scared of his growing wealth. They're scared of what he is. Remember, he has many servants. I don't know how many that is. I just know that it's growing, and they're seeing that. They're seeing he has much wealth. They're seeing he has much power, and there's many servants at his becking call. That's very intimidating to them. And so Abimelech says, go. 
This was no doubt driven by fear and jealousy. Isaac eventually agrees and departs from Gerar proper and camps out in the valley. If you look down at your Bible, it says, verse 17, And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Now, this conflict is not over. Point number two, if you're keeping track, conflict and provision. Conflict and provision. Verse 18. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. There's something about returning to these. This is, these were the work of my father, and I want to honor him, but I also need the water. So I'm going to start digging up these up, taking the earth out of these wells, giving the names of my, that my father gave back to these wells, and asking for God's blessing on them. But he's not out of the woods yet. Verse 19, But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac. Now, um, if you recall, remember Lot and Abraham's servants bickering over water rights, and so therefore Abraham said, you pick the land you want and I'll take what's left, and Lot went and Abraham went, and that didn't turn out too well for Lot. So this is not an uncommon issue where the herdsmen are coming and fighting over, over water. You know, it's funny, you watch an old Western, water wars are very often like the centerpiece of those movies. And I remember thinking, wow, that's such an old-time thing. Then I moved to Eastern Oregon. <laughs> this is a common, common thing, and it makes all the sense in the world. No water, no food, no animals, no job, no moolah. So, if that's all the case... This water is vital. So the herdsmen are out there, and the other herdsmen are out there, and they say, what are you doing? This is our land. Get away from that water. That water is for our um, herds. It's a very common thing and makes all the sense in the world that there would be quarreling. But don't ever forget that there's two things going on here. There's this thing going on here where they're fighting, and then there's this thing up here where God is in sovereign control, working according to his good purpose. Don't ever miss that, beloved let me pause on that for a second. <clears throat> because at times, we can get so myopic on just what we can see, we, we begin to forget that which we cannot see. One of the best questions I hear when I meet with a beloved brother or sister who's really struggling with something is when they say, what's God doing in this? Not, not what's God doing in this? Not outrage, not frustration, but sincerely, theologically, I wonder what the Lord's doing in this. Because it hurts real bad. The pain is real. I'm suffering. The family's suffering. But in the midst of this, what's he up to? I think that's a sign of maturity. And it's a sign of a, of a good understanding of the God that Brother Link was talking about in reference to, okay, you're omnipresent, you're omniscient, you're omnipotent, you are in sovereign control. I see a huge issue here I'm struggling with. What are you doing? Lord, what are you up to? So there's two things happening here. Yes, the herdsmen are fighting, they're bickering over water, but God has a game plan going on. But when Isaac's servants dug the well, again, I'm reading 19 again, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water. The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, the water's ours. 
So he named the well Essek, contention, because they contended with him. And rather than fight and bicker and get violent, he leaves. Verse 21, then they dug another well. And guess what happened? They quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna, enmity. He moved away from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it, so he named it Rehoboth. For he said, at last the Lord has made room. It means a a large, broad space or more room being made for him. And we will be fruitful in the land. First well, second well, third well. Beloved, the the thing I don't want us to lose in this is you can read a passage like this just in like your regular, regular Bible reading, and you may just buzz right through it. Okay, well, well, well. Okay, yeah, he dug a well, he dug a well, he dug a well. They're fighting about it. Next, what's going on? The reason I love preaching, and the reason I love, one of the reasons I love preaching, one of the reasons I love working through a book with you is it causes me to go, now, wait a minute, there's more here than, than we may allow in our reading of the text. Remember, this is a real human being. This is narrative. This is his history. What's going on in the white space in this man's life as he digs a well? I've never dug a well personally, but from what it looks like, not too much fun. You dig one, fresh water, woo, this is great. Lord, thank you for your blessing. And then bickering and fighting goes on. Okay, I don't want to do that. Let's go to the next one. You build that. Again, fighting and bickering. Okay, we'll go and dig a third one. And eventually the Lord allows peace with that well. Here's what I want you to miss. Let's see how best to put this. Don't forget, guys, that the Lord is in the ordinary. How quickly we recognize him in the extraordinary. And how quickly we forget him in the ordinary. The mundane. The regular. What happened today? Nothing. Are you kidding? The sovereign of the universe is still in control. The earth is is still spinning. The Lord Almighty is still at work. But then you funnel it down to the precise, he's at work specifically in Isaac. Beloved, I think those ordinary days, there was a lady in our church when we were in eastern Oregon, and she was one who consistently, we would take prayer requests, a little church of about 30 people, and she would raise her hand, and her name is Myrnie. I'd say, Myrnie, you know, what, what do you have for prayer requests? She said, I don't have a prayer request. I just have a praise. I just thank God for ordinary days. Sunday after Sunday after Sunday until Myrnie eventually went to be with the Lord. She said, I just thank God for ordinary days. So there are no ordinary days if you are a believer walking with the Lord Jesus. And so conflict for sure, but then the Lord makes room for him and allows this provision. This was a distance away, and this well was provided for their needs. Now, that in a sense, guys, is the context. I want to take a magnifying glass to the rest of the text this morning that Mark read for us, because... um, It speaks volumes. And this is communion and worship. This point is communion and worship. If you look at verse 23, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. 
The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Isaac returns to a familiar place. Turn with me to Genesis 21. Just go a couple chapters back, okay? Genesis chapter 21. And drop down to 27. Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Then Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. Abimelech said to Abraham, What do these seven ewe lambs mean, which you have set by themselves? He said, You shall take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, so that it may be a witness to me that I dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba, because there the two of them took an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba, and Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree at Beersheba, and there he he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. If you look at verse 23 of chapter 26, coming back to our text, then he went up there, up from there to Beersheba. He's returning to a familiar place. He's returning to a place where his father had been tremendously blessed. He's returning to a place, a location where God had shown his grace, but also where his dad had worshipped. Now, I recognize, beloved, that not every... <laughs> I realize that uh, physical locations are not per se extra special than any other place. You are the dwelling place of the Lord. You are the temple of the Lord. But at times, God in His grace, there are particular physical locations where we go to meet with the Lord. Not just for sentimental aspect, but there's a particular sweetness about that place because God was there in that particular moment in history and specifically spoke. The orchard, the apple orchard outside of my parents' place, um, has been a sweet place for me since I was about 12. That location was a place where I met with the Lord, often. I preached my first sermons there. The apples loved it. (laughs) (laughs) It's where I pleaded with him to allow me to be a pastor. It's where I... I poured my heart out. And it has nothing to do with the apple orchard. It has to do with that location. Sorry. It has to do with that location was where the Lord specifically, I met with him. So when I hear this man goes back to Beersheba, That place has a special place for him, a special place for his father. And the Lord meets with him again in this place. Now, it's kind of 
ironic that I share this with you because when we were in Spokane a few weeks ago, months ago, whatever, time flies, we went up to my folks' old farmhouse, which they've sold, and guess what? (laughs) The orchards are all torn out and gone. (laughs) But the Lord came home with me, so it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. Um, And so when I I read here that uh, Isaac went back to Beersheba, and hear what took place here. There is such a sweetness to the text. Think about the conflict the man just went through. All the trials. Lied about his wife. Somehow, someway, I'm sure the Lord corrected him and made that clear. Trying to dig wells, trying to do this, seeing the fruit of his labors, the Lord tremendously blessing him, but then conflict everywhere the guy goes. Goes back to Beersheba, and um, this is a perfect link, what you shared this morning, brother. Consider the God that our brother shared, the God of Scripture this morning, in his infinite wisdom and understanding, goes specifically to one puny little individual man to encourage him, to bring fresh courage into this man fresh love, fresh joy into him. It says, then he went up to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night. Lord did not wait. The same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Now, it's one thing if Dan Mason were to tell you, I am with you. It's like, eh, big deal. But when the king of the universe says, I am with you, I will bless you, I will take care of your descendants, do not be scared. Don't be scared. Don't walk in fear. Don't let the men of this world intimidate you. Don't let let them rob you of your pursuit of the Lord. Don't let them rob you of that. Don't walk defeated. Don't walk pounded by what this world is throwing at you. I'm with you. I am in your presence. I love you. I'm pursuing you. I am your God. I am the God of your Father, the everlasting God, the sovereign God, the holy God. Nobody is going to harm you. I am with you. I can't help but think how that rejuvenated the man. I just brought fresh zeal into his soul. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I wasn't digging the wells alone. I wasn't facing Abimelech alone. I didn't have all the Philistines fighting with my herdsmen alone. Lord, you've been in all of it. Everything. You were there for all of it, Lord. You sovereignly directing everything to your good purpose. At times, beloved, we can all feel this sense of just a loneliness. I got nobody. I'm all by myself. And self-pity falls in and all that stuff just kind of takes over. We've got to come back to a text like this. No, I'm with you. I will bless you. 
Nobody's going to stop God. This is what's so gorgeous about this, this statement that's made here, is that if Dan Mason makes it, you know how many variables? Oh, never mind, I got a cold. Or a hangnail, or something that's going to keep Dan from coming. When God says, I am with you, there is nobody who can stop him. Nobody can say, that's not true, God won't be there. No, he will be there, absolutely. His word is as good as done, Isaac. Relax. Take a breath. Don't walk scared. Man, if there was ever, if there was ever an, a courage-giving, hope-giving statement to hear the living God say, I am with you. Beloved, can I remind you in Matthew 28 that the Lord Jesus Christ said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. That promise is yours. Don't, don't just give this to Isaac. That's your promise, beloved. If you're in Jesus Christ this morning, God is with you. God will bless you. Sometimes monetarily, sometimes he'll bless you in lack of that with his great and glorious presence. And so Isaac is promised and brought this by the living God. Just notice these promises again. He's restating these covenant blessings that are his. I am your father's God. Do not be afraid. I am with you. Please notice, earlier he said, I will be with you. Here he says, I am with you, present tense. I will bless you. I'll multiply your descendants. Again, this is stated on the base of God's promise to Abraham. Our God is a God of his word. Now, I remember years ago, Pastor Tony, a mentor of mine, I speak to him often because he's just beyond precious to me. He asked the question, what do you do with a God that was so big? That's a terrible word, but you just do the best you can. With a God that's so infinite, so marvelous, so magnificent, what do you do with a God like that? You worship him. That's what you were made to do. You were made for this. It's always funny when people say, you were made to do this. You, were made, you know what you were made to do? You were made to worship another. You may have talents and gifts and all kinds of stuff, and praise God for that. That's his gift. But you were made to worship another. And so, what a fitting response from Isaac. Look down at your Bible, verse 25. So, he built an altar. You bet he built an altar. He built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord. Another way of saying he worshipped the living God. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. The living God, in his great grace, met with this man, encouraged this man. And this man's response was, oh Lord, you are so worthy of my worship. Now, think about the irony here with me for just a second, because it's just a side note, but it's interesting. The guy who just built the altar has been on the altar. He knows how to build one. He watched it. 
and then was placed on it, and then rescued by Almighty God. I just, I, that irony cannot be lost. It's, it's, it's very, very interesting to me. Isaac responds in worship. An altar is built for sacrifice. He calls upon the name of the Lord to worship the Lord. Remember, beloved, the, the, sense, is not, um, the sense is not that God is in great need of the, of the worship or in great need of the sacrifice. God is not in great need of anything. But in worship, Isaac wants to give God something of great value to him to show, actually, you Lord, you are of far greater value than anything I own. I'll take, I'll take a possession of mine of high value, and I'll give it for you and to you to show you are of far greater value than anything I possess. That's why that altar is built there, to take an animal, currency of the day to some extent, and then take that animal and lay its life down before the Lord and say, Father, this animal is very expensive, but I don't care whatsoever. You are of far greater value than anything I've ever owned or ever will own. What a way to show worship before the Lord, to take something of great value to you and say, Father, this is meaningless in comparison to the value I see you having. And so that altar was used to bring honor and glory to the living God. Let me land the plane with a couple points of application, kind of a a few concluding thoughts that have been very heavy on my mind and heart for months, um, but specifically they fall right in line with this passage. Guys, there's a lot of needs. Man, there are a lot of needs in our world, tremendous needs in our world, hurting people everywhere. There's a lot of things that we should be doing, could be doing. I just want to put my finger on one. So I'm not saying this is the only one. Bear with me. I'm just saying this is one. And the illustration in my mind is of the airplane crashing and the individual trying to give oxygen to somebody else while they themselves suffocate. Okay? There's a a great need for all of us to take that oxygen on in order to be of value in the Lord's hand. I believe there's a great need for intimacy with our Lord. Now, let me dig down on this just a little bit. Our best friend and our closest companion in times of distress is the living God. Beloved, if you're a Christian, that should be the statement that you would make and make with joy. That the greatest friend, the greatest companion, when all the chips are down, is the living God. My wife and I are very close. I adore her. She's brilliant, smart, pretty, and all the things I'm not. But she comes second. She comes second to this companion I'm speaking of. Because eventually she goes to sleep. Kids go to sleep. Dumb phone is not ringing and texting. And I lay there in the dark and the quiet, And he never left. He didn't go anywhere. He's here the whole time. Every struggle, every difficulty, God is present. There is a great need for intimacy with our Lord. To cultivate that, to pursue that, 
It's not just something that will just happen to you in laziness. We must pursue our God. The cultivation of this mustn't be ignored. Bible reading, prayer, fellowship, public worship, walking in obedience. The time for true disciples of the Lord Jesus to be walking closer to Him than ever is now. Let me read this quote. This is a book that um, I'm going to recommend. I'm not giving it away because I'm not done with it yet, and I really like it. So, um, But this is a quote from J.C. Ryle. If you're interested and you're not reading through anything right now and you, there's a particular book you'd like to pick up and read, Holiness by J.C. Ryle is rocking my world right now. Um, and this is what he says. Sanctification, again, is a thing which depends greatly on a diligent use of scriptural means. When I think of means, I have in view Bible reading, private prayer, regular attendance on public worship, regular hearing of God's Word, and regular reception of the Lord's Supper. I lay it down as a simple matter of fact that no one who is careless about such things must ever expect to make much progress in sanctification. I can find no record of any eminent saint who ever neglected them. They are appointed channels through which the Holy Spirit conveys fresh supplies of grace to the soul and strengthens the work which He has begun in the inward man. I love how here and what Ryle is getting at is that, guys, this is not some new thing. The means of grace, the biblical means of grace for our cultivating our relationship with the Lord lies present and waiting all the time, always. And so I want to ask you a very personal question since you're all here and I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Are you partaking of undisturbed times of intimacy with the Lord? Don't answer, don't nod, don't do anything. Just, just ponder the question. Are you partaking of undisturbed time of developing intimacy with the Lord where nobody can see it, you don't talk about it, it's nobody's business, it's just you and God? I believe the power of the church of Jesus Christ to some extent has to do with the private, personal relationships we have with the Lord when nobody can see it. We can all be here and play church on Sunday. That's a piece of cake. But when nobody can watch what you're doing, that's where I believe the real work of the Spirit of God, He's, he's at work there doing that. So... As one of your pastors and as somebody who just loves you, I have a challenge that's on my mind I give to you as well. If you're not, you're chopping at a tree with a dull axe. If you are not taking times to develop intimacy with God, time in His Word, time in prayer, where nobody can see it, just walking with God. Beloved, why on earth would we starve ourselves? 
Let's pray.